0: All right, well, where we've been thus far in the book of Exodus is we have seen how in Exodus God reveals Himself in a way that He hitherto had not. God is on a mission to make Himself known. That is why the refrain throughout the book of Exodus is, and they shall know that I am the Lord. God is on a missionary journey to reveal Himself not just to His people, but to the nations. God wants to be revealed as the One who is above and and, and beyond all things. And He alone is the rightful King, ruler, object of worship. He defies description. He defies comprehension. Except by the means by which He reveals Himself. Himself. And we are utterly dependent upon His revelation to know Him, to relate to Him rightly. And so God has been revealing this. He's been showing that the idols we serve cannot satisfy. They cannot save. They cannot redeem. The trust that we put in them is vain. And their perceived power is at best Smoke and mirrors, it's all deception. And so we have seen in the Exodus fundamentally that what what God does is he saves us from slavery. He draws us from bondage so that he can draw us into a relationship with himself. Okay, God is too loving. He's not like some animal rights activist who goes up to a, to a place where animals are kept and just open the gates. Go be free. I mean, they're gonna get run over by cars or whatever. No, he loves us so much that he doesn't just let us run free to our detriment. But when he saves us. It's always, always for the purpose of relationship. And that is the kind of covenantal communion that God wants for His people as exemplified by chapter 24 when the elders are privileged to come and bask in His presence and enjoy a covenantal fellowship meal. And so, God wants to make Himself known. And Moses has been up there for several chapters. In fact, these several chapters take place over several weeks, several days. And he's been getting all the blueprints for the tabernacle and its courtyard and all of its accoutrements and everything that's going to go on there. And and we know, as we've been talking, that the purpose of the tabernacle was for communion with God, to facilitate communion with God. But then right here, we have this sudden little detour. Have you ever noticed that if you took out these three chapters, what you have starting at chapter 25 through the, through the rest of the book, through chapter 40, is it's all about the tabernacle. It's all about the people of God learning to worship and rightly relate to God. And then right dab smack in the middle of what would be an uninterrupted discussion of the tabernacle, you have chapters 32, 33, and 34 stuck right in there. It's right in the middle of it. Disrupting, if you will, the flow of the argument. We've already seen that when it came to the visit of his father-in-law Jethro in chapter 18, that that Moses felt free to record it at a different location than when it historically happened for thematic reasons. So, so why didn't Moses record the golden calf incident in another location so that way the thematic theme of the tabernacle discussion would be uninterrupted? Well, it's, it's my contention, really, that the point of chapter Chapters 32, 33, and 34 is to underscore the need for the tabernacle. This incident represents one of the low points in the Bible. In chapter 32, they commit a heinous rebellion, and it's referred to multiple times throughout the Old Testament as an example par excellence of rebellion. It is Exhibit A of the people's rebellion. So much so that even in the New Testament, it's mentioned twice as exhibit A of the people's rebellion. In these chapters, 32, 33, and 34, you see a process played out. There's rebellion, there's mediation, and there's reconciliation And the culminating verses of this section clearly are chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where God gives His magnificent self-disclosure to Moses, which is the longest description of God's character in Scripture. But before we get there, we have to see the depths of the wickedness of the people of God. How, How legitimately threatened their relationship and their standing in the sight of God was by this heinous act. Along the way, we'll see that Moses even, in their estimation, undergoes a transformation. It's kind of interesting if you think of this, these chapters as a unit, as a literary unit. In 32.1, at the beginning of this little excursus, if you will, in 32.1, the people are very clearly derisive and contemptuous of Moses. When he says, as for this Moses, this guy who brought us out of Egypt. I mean, in Hebrew, it conveys the same amount of derision as it does in, he- in English. This Moses. But then by the end of chapter 34, the people are in such stunned, wild-eyed awe of, of, of Moses that, that they're afraid to go near him because his face is literally glowing with the radiant majesty of God. So this is a transformative moment in Israel's history, and I'm hoping that studying this passage will be transformative for us. Um, The reason why this is exhibit A of their rebellion against God is, is because this is a really unique thing. I mean, most of us understand that sin is never okay, But, you know, if someone's pushing you and pushing you and pushing you and you lash out in anger, okay, it may not have been right that you lashed out, but with all these circumstances and the provocation, it's understandable. But certain sins are so egregious and bold-faced that it just defies comprehension as to what in the world. And, And this is one of them. First, think about it. Think about the proximity they are, spatially, to the very place where God has just been speaking to them. They're literally sitting at the base of a mountain where they've been able to see smoke and fire and trumpet, and they've heard a voice. And before this, they were the ones who came out of Egypt. We're not talking about a story they heard from their grandparents. They're the ones who saw the plagues. They're the ones who walked between... Pillars of water. Walls of water. They saw it. And and, and this isn't like ancient history. This, This is just a few months ago. And they do this. They had just entered into a covenant with the Lord. They had agreed to be His people. They had agreed to keep His laws. They had just ratified the covenant it very much is like marrying somebody and then committing adultery on your honeymoon. It's incredible. But it's also a big deal because it introduces one of the recurring themes of Scripture, and that is a total failure of leadership to faithfully shepherd the people. I mean, Aaron drops the ball big time, and he leads the way and idolatry and this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the rest of israel's history that the shepherds are faithless and even jesus picks up on that theme when he comes in john 10 when he said that all the other shepherds were what hirelings they cared not for the sheep so we see a pattern emerging or beginning here that continues throughout the rest of scripture But it's also a big deal because of what it conveys regarding their own sin. You see, uh, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And and what that means is that all of Scripture is authoritative. All of Scripture is God-breathed, and that includes the words. Now, Israel's sin has clearly been on display Okay? They've they've questioned Moses. They, they, They rebelled at the water's edge before they crossing the Red Sea. But words matter. And up to this point, Israel's actions have never been called by the word sin. In fact, in the book of Exodus up to this point, the only person who's used the word sin, is Pharaoh in regards to, I have sinned, Moses, pray for me. And up to this point, whenever the Israelites have grumbled and complained and doubted and sinned, God's, without a grumble, without a a complaint, just given them what what they're complaining about. But now that they're in covenant with God, in these three chapters, all of a sudden, 11 times the word sin is used in reference to the people of Israel and their actions. It is as if they are just now really coming face to face with the depth of their sin that they really truly honestly don't deserve to be in the presence of this God who is standing before them in fire and smoke and that they really really do need to be atoned for it's not a game now if you think back to the beginning of the Bible up to this point for the people of God really this may sound scandalous, but it's almost as if God has given them a free pass. There's never been consequences for their sin, really. If you think about it, Abraham, he goes down to Egypt, and he's afraid of Pharaoh. So he, he's afraid that Pharaoh will kill, his, will kill him and take his wife. So he basically prostitutes out his wife to save his own neck. And who gets punished? Pharaoh. This happens again. The sons of Israel they commit heinous crime against Joseph. Yeah, there's a little bit of fear in their heart, but any real consequences? Not really. Jacob justified he in his mind he's justified to cheat his father-in-law laban laban comes after him and laban's the one that's warned not to touch jacob jacob cheats esau jacob is the one who gets the benefit okay all throughout biblical history the people of God sin and there's never any real consequences but that all changes now that they are in covenant with god Going forward from here, every time they grumble, they are without excuse and there are consequences. You see, it is true what Peter tells us. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if the people of God are barely saved, what will become of those who do not believe and obey the gospel of God? That's what Peter says. They have become the people of God. They have taken His name. They have married him, if you will. So now they are expected to follow the covenant and model him to the world. And so there are consequences to their actions. And, and we don't like that idea. But remember: God is a God of fire. And he exists in an approachable light. God is not Mr. Rogers. He certainly is not Santa Claus. And he's certainly not going to roll over when his people brazenly defy him. Now, this reveals why the tabernacle was needed. And this reveals why when the tabernacle had its open doors, the people would look in and the first thing they would see is an altar because we are Sinners. Just imagine, Aaron survives this. And he becomes the, he's the high priest. Now up to this moment, the Bible doesn't record any of his sins. And I mean, he's never done anything wrong. So would it have been possible up to this moment for him to have exercised his duties as high priest thinking that maybe he was worth it, that he was worthy? that there was no compelling reason why he shouldn't be the high priest? But do you think maybe now, rolling forward from it, he has a, a very acute sense of his own frailty and his own innate weakness? And perhaps maybe he would understand that salvation was by grace and not through merit. Maybe? People needed the tabernacle. We need... Propitiation. We need expiation. We need God's anger against our sin assuaged. We need our uncleanness washed away because we are dirty in ourselves. We just confessed today. We just started the Heidelberg Catechism. And and man, Heidelberg Catechism question one, you need to memorize that. Just, just, Just the conviction That's written in those words, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus. Wow. And we love that. But we forget, question two, which is also true, that there are some things we need to know in order to enjoy all that. And the first thing we have to know is what? The depth of our sin and misery. If you don't understand it, if you don't acknowledge it, then your ability to savor God's grace to you is diminished. But I suspect that going from here, Aaron had a profoundly new appreciation for grace. And I hope that'll be the same for you. But the reason why this episode makes it throughout Scripture and and it's, it's really told even to this day is because this wasn't a unique thing. Really, what happened here in Exodus 32, this story of Israel, it's the story of the world. Don't believe me? Check out these words. For although they knew God, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. That's Paul in Romans 1 talking about the world. So the, the fundamental thing the world has done is they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in Psalm 106, and reflecting on this, this is exactly what Israel has done. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. So the story of Israel is the story of the world. And brothers and sisters, all too often, it's our story too. Because we, likewise, are prone to wandering. We, likewise, are prone to the same faithless myopia, short-sightedness, that results in us worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that this passage, among others, was recorded as an example for us so that we can be instructed by it. So I posit to you that there is plenty of example in it, uh, and, and I want to really drive home the fact that this passage, we, we think it's alien because it's ancient Near Eastern and they make a statue of a bull, a calf. When it says a calf, it doesn't mean a baby cow, cute baby cow running alongside its mama in a field. It means a young, vigorous animal. And, and like it says in 106, it probably would have been a young male ox. Okay, big and strong. Oxen were, were ubiquitous because of their strength, because of their vitality, their power. They were, they were worshipped and they were used as models of their deities all over Egypt. In fact, there are many letters where Pharaoh himself is referred to as a strong bull, and most famously, in, in, in the city of Memphis in Egypt, they had the Apis bull, which was believed to, to be the body of their god, Ptah or whatever, however they pronounce it, son of Hathor. In Mesopotamia, Baal is exemplified by a bull. A bull conjures up their mind, their notions of strength and vitality. So it's not cute. It's strength they want. And there are two things here that drive their idolatry and I think that drive our own ongoing struggle with idolatry. And it's this. First of all, In verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Okay. The people saw that Moses delayed. The people are impatient. Right? Right? The people lose their patience. At the end of chapter 24, Moses had gone up, and he's been up for all of 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31. It's been 40 days. Moses did not say when he was coming back. He didn't know when he was coming back. But he's up there for 40 days, and after a while, the people get tired of it. They're impatient. Now, never mind what they had already seen and experienced They were impatient. They wanted to get on with the show, get on with the program. And this delay was cramping our style, holding us back from actualizing our dreams. You see, the essence of impatience is wanting to live by sight rather than by faith. And that's in any sphere of your life patience requires you to believe that if you hold out something good will come right but that requires faith and after a while you get tired of waiting and you become angry that your time has been wasted you want to see it you want to get it you want to res- to hold it and manipulate it in your hands you are tired of waiting. That is the essence of wanting to live by sight rather than by faith. Never mind that they had seen what you doing for me lately. Okay? We're told continually that seeing is Believing. Aren't we told that? That's a that is one of the most pernicious lies to ever be created. And here's why it's so insidious. The people have seen. Oh my goodness, I talk to Christians who who wish they could go back and see everything they saw, as if that would quell all of their nagging doubts. They have seen so much. And they still don't believe. But then here's the hook of the lie. They still believe that if they can see something more, they'll believe. Despite having disbelieved everything they've previously seen. That's a hard lie to get out of. But if you're operating out of a living by sight rather than by faith you will grow tired of waiting on God. Because God does not come at our beck and call. This is why the worship of the true and living God is so so hard for sinners. Because God is not an object to just be manipulated. You know, we say prayer works. And and, and there's truth to that, but there's also a possible misinterpretation. That you say a little jingle to the Lord and you get what you asked for. It works. It's like saying the right code words and I get what I want. God is not like that. Moses was called into God's presence and remember how long he had to wait? He had to wait six days. Most of us would have given him 10, 15 minutes. Oh, I I guess I didn't understand God's call on my life. But they got tired of waiting. Their impatience, based upon wanting to see, they needed something to see. And this Moses, this Moses, this man who led us out, the utter ingratitude. They had no gratitude in their heart at all. Not for Moses, not for the Lord. And if you look at Romans one twenty six, God, through Paul, locates humanity's denial and suppression of him out of a basic posture of ingratitude, which is why thankfulness is such a key Christian virtue. The people were receiving, were receiving, were receiving, and they were thankful for exactly none of it. And my goodness, I see that same, that same poison in my own veins. Do you see it in yours? How it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good someone treats me sometimes. There's always more they could have done. If you are ungrateful, and if you're expecting and demanding to have it now, if it's not before me, then it's not real. You're setting yourself up. But then they had a third thing Make us gods, up! Make us gods to go before us. Why do you think they needed gods to go before them? Because they wanted to get on with the show. They're in a strange, hostile land. Facing an uncertain and unknown future. They dare not go in their own strength. You see this gets at the core of of natural religion. And that is we're afraid of what goes bump in the night. We're afraid of those forces we cannot control. And so we desperately need something in which to trust. And so natural man, in hostility and rebellion against the one true and living God, nonetheless must have something to hold on to. Even though holding on to it is vain. Like me in an airplane, when it starts bumping and I hold on to the, to the, to the armrests as if that's going to save me. <laughs> They're desperate for something. They need something in which to to trust. And so they they have Aaron create them gods and and Aaron turns his mind to the the only thing he knows, Egypt. In fact, in Stephen's speech, our brother Stephen, the first martyr of our faith, in his sermon in Acts 7, he specifically reveals the affectional problem here. It says that they, at this moment, the people thrust Moses aside. And he says, in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. In their hearts. You see, what what had happened here is the people had grown up in Egypt. And even though, and this is the ludicrous thing. They want their gods to resemble the gods of Egypt, even though the Lord had just destroyed those gods. All of the livestock out in the fields that had been killed, Hathor was supposed to protect. And the Lord had just destroyed them. But that didn't stop them because it was ingrained in them that, that Egypt was the model of cultural elevation and superiority. It was the USA of the day in terms of its technical, technological prowess and international clout. It was the empire of the day. So let's look to them. They've got it going on. And if we need a God to go before us, then let's let's draw from their vast uh, knowledge and experience. And ever since then, the people of God have struggled with what can best be described as syncretism, which is where we try to construe of our faith or our God along the lines of values and appearances and priorities of of the land from which we've just been saved. It happens in every people, in every culture. I mean, frankly, don't don't raise your hand, I'm not not trying to be offensive, but but how many of you believe that God has a tattoo of Uncle Sam on his arm? Or, Or how many of you think that that God is just like Mr. Rogers or that God wears a Santa cap? How many of you think of Jesus as, as being just a hippie? Just love, man. How many? And, and, and the, the cultural markers of success and security that in, in those days, they attributed all that to deities. Right? We've just taken the label God off of all the the artifacts that we put our trust in. You know, they would say, Behold, Hathor, who, who brought us out of Egypt. We would say, Behold, my 401k account that validates and secures my future. Behold my children, which fill my life with meaning. Behold my promotion, which validates my identity. Behold my clean medical record which shows that I'm in vitality behold, behold, behold and we put our trust in this oh this will see us through the night this will get me through the hard times, I can face whatever comes my way because I've got this I remember preaching to a soldier or to, to a group of soldiers in Afghanistan you can have your Jesus chaplain, I'd rather have a full combat load in my and my, uh, my, my M4 And I thought, you know, whoever trusts in princes and horses will fall. It's okay to have a weapon of war, an instrument, but to put your trust as if this, this thing that can be bashed against a tree and broken, this thing which jams so easily, to put your trust in the created thing, it's folly and it's madness. But yet we do it. Our hearts are prone to wandering. But then in verse 6, we see that oftentimes in our lives, we, we, we put things backwards. The, the people of God, after they've worshipped this thing, it says they eat and they drink and they get up to play. And I assure you that they're not, hey, Cheerio, good chap, let's play a nice game of cricket. It's not talking about recreating. It's talking about basically imagine just a crazy madhouse loose riot where people are just going bonkers. Social breakdown happens as a symptom or a result of theological malaise. Which is why the prophets repeatedly refer back to it. The problem is not the social malaise, that's just a symptom. The problem is that you have turned from God. And so look at your life. Wherever there's relational and social breakdown, brother and sister, that's a pointer that something is wrong. And we need Jesus, we need forgiveness. Acts, I'm sorry, Exodus 32, 1 to 6, is a low point. But the same sinful impulses that they had, we struggle with, I struggle with. And this is why we need the tabernacle. This is why we need God to take on flesh and dwell among us. Because I can't reach and attain to heaven. I'm not good enough. I'm wicked. And I will worship the inventions of my mind and the creations of my hand in a heartbeat if I don't get saved by someone other than myself. And so we need a mediator. We need someone who can perfectly keep the law for us, who can perfectly atone for all of our sins. And that's what Jesus does. So, brothers and sisters, the point of today's sermon, it may seem like a downer, but we've got to recognize that we're not holier than thou. We shouldn't go tisk tisk at the Israelites. At best, we should say there, but for the grace of God go I, because my heart is so prone to wandering. And there, when we acknowledge that, there we've made room for Grace. And we've made room for appreciating God's mercies. But a proud person, Jesus didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. Do you see yourself that way? Let's pray.